The concept for ePartrade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for ePartrade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing, and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all of that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of ePartrade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. ePartrade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. Good morning from California. I am Francisque Savignan, the founder and CEO of ePartrade, the global online platform for the performance and racing industry. Welcome to Race Industry Now, the technical and business webinar series from ePartrade, presented to you by ARP and Performance Plus Global Logistics. Today, it's episode 215, and we're going to be talking race tracks with the designer of the Miami F1 tracks, which is happening in a couple of weeks. With me this morning are Judy Kim, the co-founder of ePartrade, and our wonderful host, Mr. Brad Gilly. Judy? Good morning, everyone. We are thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have Apex Circuit Design join us today because this is our first webinar, over 200 that we presented geared to racetracks. And we all know that is the foundation in our industry. You have to have racetracks to actually race. So we're excited about Apex joining us. So thank you, everyone. Going to hand it off to you, Mr. Brad Gilly. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Francis. Thank you very much, Judy. And uh, I'm very excited about this one, actually, because uh, I love talking about racetracks. I'm sitting at one right now. Um, but as everyone knows, um, it's kind of hard not to if you're involved in motorsports at all. But uh, coming up here uh, next weekend, uh, essentially, we have a big Formula One race in Miami. And uh, I know it's been a much talked about race. It's one of those that as soon as the tickets went on sale, they pretty much got gobbled up. And we're going to talk about all of it uh, and when it comes to designing racetracks as well. So uh, today's topic, designing circuits for modern Formula One by Apex Circuit Design. And uh, all of our panelists are joining us now, which is a, uh, a great thing as well. We appreciate everyone coming on. But um, this is going to be fun to talk about. As always, 
I would love to encourage you, if you have a question, you can type it into the chat as we're going along here, and we will definitely get all of your questions in, or at least as much of them as we can. Uh, but we're going to talk about what it takes to design racetracks. So with us is Clyde Bowen, the founder and director of Apex Circuit Design, Sam Worthy, the project director, Miami F1, Michael Culver, representative U.S. and Canada, and Michael Cummings, managing partner, Motorsports Capital, and owner of Carolina Motorsports Park. So with that, gentlemen, we're going to get going. And, uh, and, and Clyde, let me just start with you. Um, let's just talk about what we've got going on as far as designing this racetrack in Miami and, and really what Apex Circuit Design does and is all about. Well, thank you for the introduction. Hello, I'm Clive Bowen. And I, as you can see, I'm wearing headphones sitting in, a, in an office in the Hard Rock Stadium as we speak. Okay. We're in that final push for the, uh, the delivery of the race next weekend. Okay. We've been involved, as you probably know, right from the very beginning of the first concept plans downtown. And as time went by, we got more involved with that. Then there was a shift of focus to the Hard Rock Stadium, and we were lucky enough to be included in that too. Our business is one of delivery of facilities right from initial concept design through to project delivery. That's Can you hear me okay? Yeah, no, we hear you fantastic, actually. Your, your headset is, is, uh, is magnificent, so that's a, that's a really good thing. Uh, Sam, let me go ahead and bring you in, uh, project director of Miami F1. I mean, obviously, anytime you're going to run a race, it's a challenge, but when you're going to actually run it on streets in any city, it's a, it's a challenge as well. So kind of give us an idea of where we are right now as we get ready for the big race next weekend. Quite a bit going on, mainly all of our track vendors wrapping items up. Uh, pretty exciting this week, we have Formula One that has showed up as well. And so they've been walking the track, giving good feedback. Of course, they always want a few last minute changes. So we're working through the, that as well. And with this being year one for the F1 Miami GP, it's interesting for everyone just because seeing this on paper and in models is one thing. Once you actually get your feet on the ground, everyone realizes that certain camera positions have to move, certain marshal posts have to be adjusted, the G flags have to shift. And so we're going through that process at the moment. So it's definitely ongoing, but overall we're in a really good spot. Everyone's very happy with it. And then we'll also be looking forward to the FIA showing up next week as well. So a lot of work has gone into this. I mean, as you said, it's a street circuit. And so we're uh, actually crossing over quite a few of the local streets here, mainly in the turnpike areas. And so there's been a lot of community involvement and making sure that everyone around the site knows what's going on. And so with that said, that communication has been ongoing. Everyone is on the same page and working towards making this a great event. Awesome. Uh, I did see a couple of things from the chat that some people do hear the feedback. I don't hear it on my end. I don't know if any of our other uh, panelists do. Michael Culver, are you hearing anything? Um, or Clive, anyone getting feedback? I was for a while, but it seems to have uh, improved. Okay. Okay. Well, good. If it's improved. Okay. All good. Now I just saw someone else from the uh, chat. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we appreciate that. So thank you very much. Uh, all right. So uh, Michael Culver, I guess, while we're talking to you, uh, tell us about what you do as far as, uh, you know, representing and, and some of your history and experience as well. Well, I've been a gearhead for probably the first word came out of my mouth when my mother was car. So I guess that's at the tone. Um, I followed racing uh, as a kid. And then I was lucky enough to be able to do it myself and then uh, ran Skip Barber Racing School for quite some time. And we were a big renter at the time of, of 
many of the iconic tracks that people know, uh, you know, like Road America, Road Atlanta, Sebring, uh, Laguna Seca, and um, Lime Rock. Um, so I sort of come at it, come at it sort of from a user's point of view. Um, and what my what I'm trying to do is uh, increase the visibility of Apex circuit design uh, and approach uh, current facilities that we think we can come in and enhance uh, uh, revenue and therefore create value for those facilities. And then uh, we also work on greenfield projects, which uh, are take a little longer to get um, to get quote unquote traction. Um, Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, Michael Cummings, let's bring you in as well. Um, you know, with what you do with Motorsports Capital and uh, owner of Carolina Motorsports Park, tell us about your involvement with this. Thank you. Um, well, I discovered about 10 years ago, there was no financial firm dedicated to motorsports, um, specialized in motorsports and understood the business very well. So I formed Motorsports Capital really to help uh, motorsports companies get access to capital markets. And 90% uh, of my customers were racetracks. So uh, I helped many of the racetracks in this country with their business plans and, and, and raise capital. Uh, a few years ago, I called on Carolina Motorsports Park, doing nothing more than trying to get a consulting assignment. And uh, they told me they didn't need capital. Uh, they were for sale. Uh, I looked around. I thought there was a tremendous amount of potential. Uh, with this uh, particular property, and I wound up buying it. So I didn't never expect it to be a, a track owner, but uh, uh, now we are. And uh, uh, I, but no one told me it was a seven day a week, uh, fourteen hour a day job. But uh, we're enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting. I once heard someone talk about, uh, you know, who runs a, a motorsports facility that, hey, we're open 500 days a year. And, uh, and what that might mean is you might just have events on the weekends, but uh, you might also have different rental events happening during the week and multiple at one time and all of that is, uh, as I'm sure you well know, but it's a it's a labor of love for sure. Uh, it, it is. And I'm fortunate enough that I've got uh, family members working with me. So uh we're kind of doubly blessed to get to do something you love and do it with people you love. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's talk about this circuit. And uh, Clive, let me go back to you and um, just give us an idea about designing um, for Formula One and maybe designing for other forms of motorsport as well. What the differences might be, the intricacies and, um, you know, just a lot of the different things you have to do. Oh, cool. uh, can you hear me? OK. Yes, sir. Grant. So Formula One is the pinnacle of motor racing from a global perspective. I know that there will be some championships in the US that might question that statement, but from a, a requirement in terms of performance of the vehicle, we have to accommodate some of the most extreme uh, performance criteria that you would encounter. A Formula One car, when it hits the brakes at high speed, slows down at 5.5 G. That's a bit like a fighter jet. When you're going through a corner at maximum speed, where you're in a grip limited corner, you're going to be pulling just over 5G. These guys who drive these cars are superhuman because their heads weigh five times as much when they're going around corners that yours does. Yours does. There's no other race category that has anything vaguely like it. And so when we're designing a racetrack, we have to accommodate that performance envelope. Now the FIA, who are the governing body of motor racing, have some standards and we have to accommodate those. They're both for safety as well as practicality. 
and they've got grades. So the highest grade of a race circuit is grade one, and that is for a Formula One car. And the definition of the different grades is broadly speaking, a weight to power ratio with weight in kilograms and power in PS. So a, uh, a Formula One car with around about 900 or so horsepower is, it weighs about 800 kilograms. And so it's under one as a ratio. So for that reason, one and under is a Formula One or a grade one definition. Anything that's between two and one would be on a grade two circuit. Anything between three and two would be a grade three circuit. And those are the three international categories. Now, interestingly, designing for a Formula One car is quite challenging because you can't be as aggressive with grade change or direction change than you can for the lesser categories. And as Michael Cummings will know, and any other track operator will know, you have your major events like Formula One or Indy or NASCAR, and they may be the magic dust that you sprinkle on your facility that makes everybody aware of the existence of your facility. But the day-to-day -day grind is where your profits are made because you have fewer staff, you've got less uh, security requirements, less marketing requirements, your overheads are dramatically lower on a daily basis. And so though the income is relatively low, it's much higher margin. And if you've got people driving on a Formula One track in a, let's think, a Ford Focus, they're going to get bored pretty quickly because the direction changes and the grade changes are so subtle that you wouldn't really feel them in a lower performing car. But in terms of designing for Formula One, it's the same challenge as it is, believe it or not, for any of the other categories. We have to work with data. So we start with a simulation tool which uses real data that we get from real Formula One teams that allows us to create a speed distance graph. From that, we can calculate what our safety requirements are in terms of runoff areas, or if we're going to be, as we are here in Miami, having a hybrid circuit that is more temporary, well, it's all temporary, but more of a street circuit conventional layout. You'll notice when you see the, the race in a couple of weeks time, that we do have some corners where there are big runoff areas and others where you're just running sin like a sinew through the site. And that's all to do with impact angles and speeds. So if we know that we can deflect a car and it can just bounce off a concrete barrier and just carry on on the track safely in terms of the, the driver's uh, survivability, then that's what we do. But in circumstances where that can't be done or you're worried about sight lines, then you have to open up the runoff areas. In terms of grade change, there is a bit of that here in Miami, believe it or not, despite the fact the place is as flat <laughs> as a pancake. And there's one particular sequence which will be very visible on television where we are climbing from around about six feet below the level of the turnpike access road. There's an on-ramp. That on-ramp has a 7% crossfall, so we have to be climbing as we cross it because the agreement we have with the Department of Transport is that we can't actually change the geometry of their, their roadways. But then we have to quickly get over a crest to be able to get under the flyovers for the turnpike access road. When everybody heard my idea to have a, a live racetrack communicating and tra traversing a live highway intersection, they all thought I was mad. 
I'm beginning to wonder if perhaps I was, but we did manage to do it. But we've had a chicane to put in to keep the speeds down. The speeds are important when you're considering grade change because there's a guideline that is linked to the square of the speed, which in very, very approximate terms means that your vertical acceleration is never more than a half a G. So if you're going over a crest, as we are in turn 14, we had to make sure that we were getting the cars down to a speed so that as they went over that crest, they weren't exceeding that half G vertical acceleration. A bit geeky, um, but that's that's the sort of type of, of engineering that we've had to look at in the design process. Wow, <clears throat> that uh, uh, what's fascinating about that, that that's, that's way more involved in the, obviously you talk about safety and things like that, but you know, a lot of us would look at it and go, wow, that looks like a really neat layout, but all of the different things um, that would actually go into making that layout. Sam, let me ask you, um, as the project director, uh, obviously, if Clive has a vision and they go through their simulation and things that they want to do, um, actually implementing that and, and building it, and making sure everything is set to what it needs to be set. What are the challenges there? Yeah, so the challenges with that are making that dream really reality in terms of the layout on site itself. Uh, let's see, Clive, can you mute yourself, bud? Thanks. Yeah, sure. And so with that said, the construction out here was challenging in the sense that this is still a functioning, a entertainment venue throughout the year. And so with that, it's a matter of having to work around uh, football games, having to work around concerts, et cetera, and then at the same time work through active roadways. And so the construction process out here was very challenging in many different respects. And most of those were related to how we phased the work throughout site. And so we had to break it up into many different components. And then at the same time, do quite a bit of work. As Clive said, it's very flat here. And so there are many drainage concerns that exist here. And so with that, there are a lot of improvements that had to occur throughout site just to ensure that we do not have any problems with uh, water ponding on or near the track. And then beyond that, at the same time, making sure we're not tearing everything up at once so we can still accommodate parking, tailgating, what have you. I think at this point, this will be the first racetrack, um, F1 racetrack that has any tailgating on it. So I look forward to that. And with that, the main component that we really wanted to focus on is at the end of the day, we want to get an amazing track in terms of the asphalt and the surface itself. And so all of that effort that went into the design has got to be realized in terms of making sure that it's fully delivered. And so when Formula One shows up, we know they have very high expectations. With this being a street circuit, there's some flexibility in how that is actually applied, but there's still those expectations that exist to have it be a safe track and at the same time challenging. And so that really translated into a matter of us working with various experts in their field and so, for example, the pavement itself is a very interesting aspect of this track in the sense that it is comprised of both local aggregates, uh, local lime rock, as well as aggregates that are from the state of Georgia. And so that's where we pulled in granite. And so by blending those two, we were able to get a pavement design that overall provided a lot of grip for us. And then at the same time was still able to provide good racing. So it's not too easy for the drivers, if you will. And in order to lay all of that, we had to use and really push the boundaries of technology to make sure that all of that is laid to the exact specifications in terms of smoothness, in terms of crossfall that we designed needed to make sure we're hitting that design for those high speeds that everyone knows exists 
And we ended up uh, pulling in companies uh, out of different states. For example, with the pavement, we actually pulled in a company from New York called Reifenberg. We pulled in Topcon in order to assist with GPS controlled micromilling to ensure smoothness throughout the site. And so we took a very calculated planned approach to make sure that we're providing the highest quality possible that can be provided. So out here, it's not a matter of it being a street circuit in the sense that we're just racing on the streets that already exist. Instead, there is still quite a bit of construction that goes into making sure that that plan that the rest of our team put together with the design is actually realized and still provides an amazing race. That, uh, that's pretty fascinating. When it, uh, we did have a question about the pavement and the mix and all of that. And I know you talked about some of the aggregate and things like that. Um, are there different surfaces that they're going to be going on? I mean, is, is the pavement going to be the same throughout ultimately? Or if you're going from this part of you know, the streets to this part of the facility or something like that, will they be dealing with different types of um, surfaces that they're racing on top of? No, and so in this particular case, we ended up actually surfacing the entire track itself. And so what that did for us is gave us a clean slate and gave us a consistent surface through the entire thing. Uh, we looked at different approaches in terms of just doing some milling resurfacing as well as trying to leave some of the existing asphalt. But in all of those cases, it looked like it was not going to be possible really due to the elevations, the crossfalls, what have you. And so it required more of a wholesale approach in terms of getting that asphalt to where it needs to be. Uh, that's interesting. Michael Culver, you and I were talking a, a little bit yesterday and, um, you know, about racetracks and uh, obviously like iconic racetracks and then maybe signature elements to the racetracks as well. And of course, we're going to a place for the very first time with this one in Miami. But can you speak about just how important that is to motorsport and especially when it comes to having that identity? Um, yes. Um, we found, for instance, our students uh, at Skip Barber. Uh, were very much attracted to the tracks that we would go to. And um, Skip Barber, the man, told me early on that those tracks are really part of your brand. Uh, for instance, Laguna Seca, the corkscrew, uh, at Lime Rock, the downhill, um, Watkins Glen, you know, the laces and the S's and the inner loop and all of that. So if, if somebody's taking a three-day racing school or just participating in, in a... In a um, you know, HPDE uh, course, they want us to go to a track and tell their friends, okay, I went to, I went to Laguna and I went through the corkscrew and it was amazing and so on. So they want to have that experience that is, is, is unique. Um, so having a signature element to a track, I think is really important to attract uh, business. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of business and uh, and uh, Michael Cummings, I don't know if this is maybe even a better question for you uh, when it comes to actually realizing return from your capital investment. And when it comes to just a lot of the other things, as we were talking earlier, other than the main event that you're doing, um, can you speak on that just a little bit? I think and, and, and Clive hit it, I think, uh, earlier. Um, some of your biggest events are not your most profitable events. Uh, it's it's very expensive to host sec, uh, spectators, uh, but I thought you pay for bleachers and security and whatnot. And then you got weather to worry about and, and sanctioning fees. And But they do have a halo effect uh, in terms of uh, drawing attention to your facility, uh, in terms of giving credibility. 
to your facility. And it kind of bleeds through the other 364 days a year. Race teams want to practice on tracks they're going to race on. Uh, so you'll have a lot more demand for, for, for daytime testing. Uh, as Mike Clover said, uh, students or non-drivers uh, want to race on tracks they see on TV or promoted. So, um, uh, so it's kind of flip-flopped. You, you, you would think that the, the big show is kind of what pays the bills, but quite frankly, uh, they're the ones that sort of make uh, the, the rest of the, probably more valuable uh, the, the rest of the year. So um, it's, uh, it's very important in the racetrack business to, to have weekday business. Um, yeah, I, I tell my people, if, if wheels aren't turning, we're not earning. Um, and, you know, I don't want to come in here and, and, and see no one on the track. So um, uh, I think having big profile events does, does a lot to fill the rest of the days in the calendar. You know, our, our inventory is 100% perishable, right? Uh, you can't buy uh, today's track time tomorrow and you have to keep, uh, keep the calendar full. And that's what, that's what the big time events really help a lot with. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I love that phrase. If wheels aren't turning, we're not earning. <laughs> uh, that's that. That is good. But it is true. It's, it, you know, I mean, it, it's exposure for the racetrack and all of that. But, you know, of course, this will being a, a temporary street circuit. Um, Clive, let me come back to you as far as designing a temporary street circuit versus designing what's going to be a permanent circuit. Um, is one easier than the other? What are the challenges of both? Actually, uh, there are challenges with both. And there is, in fact, a third type of circuit, which is what we have here in Miami, because a street circuit in the purest sense of the term is one where you're using highways and the intersections are defined in advance. And yes, you might be able to massage some of the radio, but that's about all. And so when we were looking downtown, for example, uh, on Biscayne, we were working with actual roads and highways. In the case of uh, a permanent racetrack, you start with a clean sheet and you can work with the topography and the constraints and everything else. And that's relatively easy in that you are letting the ground talk to you. Um, so I'm sure that if somebody had given me the same piece of land as Laguna Seca and started out yesterday, we'd probably have done the corkscrew as well, because it's a perfect example of working a, a, a lovely ribbon of asphalt through a, a phenomenal piece of topography. The third option is the hybrid, which is where we're at with Miami. You, I'm sure, have heard some folks saying that this is a racetrack on a car park. It's not. It's a racetrack that's been built from the ground up, literally from the foundations up, which will be used for the rest of the year, sometime for parking, sometimes for tailgating, sometimes for rock concerts, sometimes for the tennis center for the Miami Open. And so it's a fully engineered race circuit where we've use the same sort of methodology that we would for designing a permanent racetrack in terms of raceability, uh, making sure that we have the, the correct input from regulators, from teams, from the promoter to ensure that what we have is going to be good for racing. And that's very important. In addition to that, we need to make sure that it is buildable. So we didn't want to have the functionality of the site ruined once all of the temporary infrastructure was taken away each year. It is probably the most challenging. And in fact, given the constraints of the site, when we first looked at it, we thought, hey, look, we've got all of this space we can work with. And then we realized that there are all these events that are used or using that site. And so we ended up with really a very narrow window for all of this track infrastructure to be built within. And yet, I think anybody who's seen it realizes that when you drive it, it feels like a, a, a conventional permanent racetrack. 
That's interesting. Um, there's some questions from the chat, and I might even try and combine some of these because some are similar, but, but this one more specifically. Uh, how much input does Formula One have on the design of the track? And let me even take that a step further because, you know, it's a Formula One race, but you also talked about, uh, you know, the FIA you know, you know, basically the classification of racetrack and obviously Formula One and the FIA being, you know, different entities in that regard. Yes. So dialogue is essential. doesn't matter whether you're designing for the least uh, or the or the highest form of motorsport. You have to have that kind of input in any event. Formula One is an extraordinarily professional outfit and they have a, a circuit engineering team. And so we work with them. They obviously had knowledge about uh, the the new generation of cars were ahead of us because they set those regs and had them approved by the FIA. So when we were simulating our track, um, we were getting, there were small percentage differences, but we were getting small differences in terms of the performance envelope because we were working with a model that was based on the 2021 cars. And they, they knew, for example, that the cars would be able to stay closer to each other with the new Grand Effect era. And yes, the answer is we had a lot of dialogue and, and the iterative process of working with them to finesse the design was significant. It, it took many months. Mm -hmm. um, as far as your, kind of a couple of questions here, um, talking about raceability of the racetrack and, and going into the design of that, um, as far as, uh, you know, passing zones and everything. And then someone even asked, you know, how many DRS zones might be utilized if you know the answer to that? Well, there's certainly two, potentially three DRS zones. Um, that, that will be defined um, when the FIA get a chance to, to come on site and we've seen the results of first practice. I'm not sure if you noticed, but in uh, Australia, the plan was to have four and they ended up down at three uh, by the time of the race because the effect of DRS is so much more powerful this year than it has been on previous years. And you do want to have some element of effort associated with a pass, in my opinion. You don't want to just press a button and have a back to the future whoosh and suddenly you're in front of the guy in front of you. So the. Um, sorry, what was the other question? There was you wanted to know how many DRS zones there were. DRS zones to... and, and just yeah, really and also trying to maybe design passing zones. Um, we even have a lot oh, longer yeah. question yeah. in the chat about, you Ooh, know, maybe you have but, sections okay. that are really slow. I, 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 could <laughs> bore, I, I could bore South Africa on that subject. It's, it's certainly one of our, our principal areas of expertise. We have everybody in the team races or drives on track. Um, we we robustly defend, but also challenge each other's design principles. We're a team. It's not down to me. It's not down to Sam. It's down to each individual member of our team. And the, the way that we come up with raceability, the way that we identify passing is through experience, both in terms of on-track activity and observation of um, how race championships work out and how people race in the new regulations and new formulae but also um, there are some basic principles i was not the greatest fan 20 years ago when this notion of a kilometer long straight followed by a hairpin came in as the de facto mechanism for passing uh, i'm a bit more old school i've run race teams i've raced carts myself and so i would say that um, passing is something that should happen in corners as well as on straights. And for that to work, you need to have lower G corners 
where people have spare capacity to to use the engineering uh, or the the envelope of performance that that car has to actually pass in a corner. I, I understand you have a video as well, Clive, and uh, we have that ready to go uh, anytime you wish us to run it. Sure. I think that's probably a good way of getting people to understand what I've just been talking about. <laughs> All right. Formula One comes to Miami for the first time in 2022, and we take an exclusive look at the all-new Miami International Autodrome with the experts that made it happen, Apex Circuit Design. Let's take a lap with Apex CEO Clive Bowen around his 3.36-mile track. So we're heading down to turn one. You'll notice that the track rises and falls. It's all part of our drainage strategy for the site because if it rains here, it rains hard and we need to make sure that we can take that water off the surface as quickly as possible. Turn three here is the start of a big acceleration run around the south of the stadium. The stadium effectively has the racetrack as a moat because we've built the circuit around the stadium. So we're going into a very high speed sequence here. The cars turn in at turn four at approaching 300 kph. They'll drop a couple of gears by turn five here, but still be traveling at some speed. Turn six, seven, and eight all blend together as we go into the far west of the Hard Rock Stadium site. Inside turn seven and eight is a very Miami solution to hospitality with a marina with a clubhouse. There are going to be a number of large yachts moored with artificial water rippling as a surface around them on the inside of turn seven and eight here. This is a tightening radius left-hander with a, a small homage to the Bose sequence, which is, which is a right-hander, as you know, in Paul Ricard. Racing line has a late turn in to straighten this exit to get the maximum speed onto what is effectively the longest straight on the circuit because the exit from turn eight to turn 11 is 1.4 kilometers. We are about to go under a gondola. Anybody who goes skiing will recognize this. It's made by Obermeyer and it will be running during the race. We did require quite a considerable amount of dialogue with the FIA and F1 to ensure safety. But for those people who will be able to sit in those cars during the track activity, they're going to get a unique perspective. Not only will they be able to look out conventionally, you'll notice there are glass bottoms to these gondola cars, so you'll have a view directly beneath of the cars passing you. We're one of our 10 bridges. I think this is a record for an event. And here we have a company called Smith Fence who are installing our Gibra barrier systems. There's no point on the circuit where we don't have a minimum of 1.5% cross fall or long fall, which means that if there's rain, the water can flow and find its way to the drainage collection. Into turn 11. Very wide, plenty of space for side-by-side -side action. And then into our homage to the Mexico Grand Prix Foro Sol environment, where there is a semicircular grandstand facing the beach with its two swimming pools, its stages, its cabanas, big screens. Another unusual feature of this track and gives it a criteria as a street circuit is we are crossing the Turnpike Access Road. The Florida Turnpike is a major highway that runs just to the east of the stadium. So we come first to turn 14 
a blind left hand crest into a chicane with turn 15, a short acceleration run down to a tight left hander for turn 16, and then on to the 1.2 kilometre long back straight. It's narrow to start with your note, and that's limited just simply by geography. The boundary line for the ownership is where the barriers are. The left-hand side is defined by the on-ramp from the turnpike to our left. There is an enormous amount of, of vegetation in this site. Mr. Ross, who owns the Hard Rock Stadium, is very particular about his landscape, and his team are very careful to ensure that if a tree or a shrub had to be moved, it wasn't lost, it was relocated. An example being these royal palms down here on the left, which were in front of the stadium. We also have this large and very ancient oak. We're now approaching the braking zone, about 90 metres out from the turn-in for turn 17. You'll notice the big grandstand with, I think it's 12 or 15,000 seats. This sequence of grandstands next to turns 18 and 19 will get a fantastic view because they don't just see this left hand and right hand, they see the pit entry and also they see across the grass here to the approach to turn 17. And here we are on the start finish straight where we started. Wow, that, uh, that's incredible. And what a great video too. What a great tour around the circuit. Um, and, uh, and, and just so wonderfully put together on something like that. And it's interesting, too, when you start talking about the things like relocating the trees or the entrance to the turnpike. And, you know, a lot of those things that can become very recognizable, too, as the years go on. And, uh, and we watch that. Sam, um, I see you on the screen. I, I am curious, too, um, when it comes to the racing circuit, that's one thing. You talked earlier about different locations for flag people and all of that, really access points and all the things that you have to do to manage the event. It's one thing what's actually happening on the racing surface itself, but in the event of an incident or different things like that, to be able to have that access, to be able to get around the facility and uh, have people even do their jobs as well. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah, sure. On this particular side, and I think similarly with other uh, street circuits and temporary events, it's very challenging, simply from the standpoint that since we don't have a permanent site, we don't have the luxury of having a permanent 10 or 12 foot wide area where we can be driving all around the circuit itself. And so instead, it's a matter of trying to have a balance between getting access around site with various modes of transport, whether it be an actual vehicle, a golf cart, or even down to a dirt bike in some particular spots. And so it's balancing all of those various elements in order to still provide safe access in order to evacuate any drivers if needed or provide any medical assistance or any intervention vehicles and identifying areas for snatch gaps just to make sure that we have all potential zones where there could be um, incidents on site covered. And then at the same time, still allowing that circulation around the circuit itself. And so in that video, one of the areas that's highlighted is the back straight between turn 16 and 17. That's one area that we had quite a few challenges with just because we're pushing the track all the way up to the property boundary. It's only a few feet away from there. And so we had to coordinate with the adjacent landowner, in this case, South Florida Water Management District, a regulatory body, in order to allow us to even use that area for access throughout the race itself. And with that, we weren't able to put in any paving or any gravel or anything like that to make it an easy road to maneuver back and forth. 
And so instead we had to take a different approach of planning out different types of vehicles like motorcycles, boundary riders, in order to evacuate any uh, drivers that may need assistance there. And so it's a bit of a challenge in order to make that work all throughout the site itself, just because at the same time, we don't want to be mooring the site, only enhancing it. And so with that, it makes it a bit more interesting and a bit more fun to figure out and takes a bit of pre-planning in this case with South Florida Motorsports as the promoter. And so it, there's been a lot of back and forth coordination on that and making sure that both the FIA as well as F1 and then the local ASN act is they're fully aware of what those constraints are ahead of time and everyone's on the same page there. You know, and, and doing something for the first time um, obviously has its challenges once you get to come back and do it again. Ideally, I hate to use the word easier, but maybe <laughs> more efficient. How about that? Um, so really the question I have is um, how soon after um, the event on May 8th uh, will it look just like it did before you guys showed up? And then coming back, how quickly can you actually rebuild the circuit, do you feel? So with this being year one, of course, we had a longer build, build schedule just to get everything in place, work out the kinks that we knew would be there. And in order for us to go back to regular programming out or really, we're targeting a window of about four to six weeks. And so with that, some of the larger structures, such as the pit building, may take longer than that in order to get fully removed. But when we're looking at things like the barriers throughout site, the debris fencing, the bridges, the 10 temporary bridges that we have, we're targeting about that time frame anywhere from a month to month and a half. In order to build this again for next year, uh, we're looking at about two months for all the track assets. And then another month or two on top of that for the pit building itself, just because the pit building is, again, a unique hybrid in many ways, similar to the circuit, since we've got race control tower and the garages that are permanent, but then the paddock club on top, that's temporary. And so those done for various reasons, but beyond that, we're actually able to use that for other events throughout the year. And so during football, we're talking about putting vendors in there selling and bratwurst and steaks, what have you to go grill and tailgate on. But then during F1, we bring the teams back in and we're ready to race again. And so again, it's very much a hybrid site in that sense. And it's really focused on trying to minimize that buildup time and removal time. That way we can have other events go on and other concerts go on as well. Mm -hmm. Clive, I want to ask you this. Uh, this does come from uh, the chat. It says, how is it uh, the established iconic natural terrain tracks like Watkins Glen, Road America, Road Atlanta are not FIA rated for Formula One, but a temporary track can be built to suit their standards. Um, and the, it goes on further to say it doesn't seem that temporary adaptive changes um, would suffice at those tracks to be considered by the FIA. Uh You've no idea how much effort went into being able to ensure that we had impact angles of 30% or less. And at somewhere like Watkins Glen, where you've got a, an absolutely wonderful ribbon of asphalt that meanders through some of the most beautiful countryside, it rises, it falls, it's got compound radii, and it has a need for runoff areas. If you were to try to re-engineer Watkins Glen so that we could uh, have a inverted commas hybrid or temporary installation and you put barriers up close, we would almost certainly have to reprofile each of those corners and you then wouldn't have Watkins Glen. 
that that makes sense uh, and, and it's amazing to think you know as technology develops and things like that um you know how how it's not able to work but yet when you can design this circuit here uh, it's really neat what else are you guys working on at apex design what other tracks um can you tell us about well this is our 29th in 20 years um we are expecting to finish our 30th this year as well which is a track in coimbatore in the south of india uh, we have three projects that are either in construction or soon to start construction in China, believe it or not. We have another one in South Korea. Um, we have this year completed the, the full construction design, engineering and FIA homologation for the second circuit in Bathurst in New South Wales in Australia. And we've got a number of, of leads in the pipeline, which I can't talk about. <laughs> well we look forward to hearing about those how about that hmm. that that's going to be a great thing uh someone asked about the tire manufacturer as well uh pirelli their involvement you know we talked about specific asphalt and everything uh, the the interface to to pirelli has been through f1 and so the the texture of the surface that we have created is one that is defined by and effectively approved by the, uh, by the tire manufacturer. Um, so the reason why we had the asphalt mix that we did and then the subsequent processing using track jets to lift off the bitumen surface on the top and to winkle out the small aggregate on the very top surface so that the exposed aggregate that is left behind has a target of between 0.8 and one millimeter. And it's a very abrasive surface if you if you try to rub your foot on it it won't it just stops wow um you know I, i'm sure michael has dealt with this uh, in racetracks and different things like that but once once the formula one track is gone and it's just regular daily use are there any limitations on that you know for example if they were having an event could you park 18 wheelers on it or would you want to stay away from doing this or if they wanted to put up a, car, a concert stage and they needed to drive pins into the ground what are some of the limitations just at the facility right well we are trying to, to to treat the asphalt as if it's made of gold but there is the practicality of a multi-use venue which has all of those other things going on so we've said very clearly that we can't restrict vehicle traffic or parking for that matter or tailgating even for that matter but what we can do is say absolutely no way to any kind of staking of temporary structures, whether they be stages or, or, or marquees for events. So those will have to be elsewhere. But don't forget, you know, we haven't used 100% of the site for the track. We've, we've filled the site with the track, but as a percentage of the available land, it's probably, I'm guessing here, less than 20%. Mm -hmm. uh, is any of the curbing or rumble strips or anything like that, is, is any of that permanent now to this site or does all of that come in temporary? It's all temporary. So the bases are permanent. And in fact, we've, we've, we've tried a new tech here for the first time of a fiber reinforced concrete. Uh, as you know, concrete is designed to work in compression rather than in tension. But when you put uh, chemical anchors in to hold bolts securely for the, these curves, it's ordinary, it's normal to expect to re-drill those on a yearly basis, but that's a bit of a nuisance. So our hope is that by having a fiber-reinforced concrete of a very high specification, those chemical anchors will stay in situ permanently, and each year you just bolt on the, the curbs in situ. 
Wow. This is truly fascinating. And, and I think we could probably spend, you know, three or four hours talking about it. And I don't even know that you guys have three or four hours here over the next uh, week we're, and a half we're, or so. We're up against it. So we really ought to get on. <laughs> Yeah, but we we really appreciate uh, Sam, Michael, Michael, Clive, um, everyone coming on here and just, uh, you know, talking about this. We know it's going to be an exciting event. And obviously, the excitement leading up to it um, has started from the very first announcement. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you you very much. I know it's a very busy week for you guys. So uh, what a great webinar. It has been recorded. It will be posted later on on the ePortrait platform as well on our uh, social media channels. We will be back next week and we're going to be talking uh, piston rings with total sealed piston rings. So thank you very much for being with us today and let's go racing. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Registering on ePartrait is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number, and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now, and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.